when Moses asked to see God's glory, God responded with words. The text of Exodus has preserved the encounter in Exodus chapter 34, verses 5 through 8, in the following way. It says, The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name the Lord. If you ever wonder what it means to pray in the name of Jesus, this is what it means to pray according to the character of God. Right? He, he declares the name, and this is Yahweh is what it is in Hebrew, as far as we know how to pronounce it. And then he continues, The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for the thousandth generation, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, yet by no means clearing the guilty, but visiting the iniquity of the parents upon the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. And Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshiped. It's interesting that earlier in the passage, God described this scene, this revelation, as seeing God's back as opposed to seeing his face. You remember, some of you maybe that he said, no one can look on my face and live. So I will hide you in the cleft of the rock. There's a song that uses that image, right? And he'll, I'll hide you with my hand. And as I pass by, you'll see my back. Well, this is the scene. What this likely implies is that the description we just read is barely a glimpse of God and not at all to be taken as an exhaustive description. But more interesting still is that when Moses asked to see God's glory, God responded by explaining to Moses in brief who God is. God revealed himself to Moses through words. And those words remain important for us. God described himself to Moses as merciful. The Hebrew word is rachum. And gracious. That's chanun. Slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. That's chesed. And faithfulness, emet. You've learned some of those words. We have in the last year, not all of them. The word translated merciful has to do with the lower intestines or with a woman's womb and describes someone who feels compassion for another. The word translated gracious is only used of God in the text of the First Testament and it's used in contexts in which the cries of the oppressed or the suffering are heard. The phrase translated slow to anger, one of my favorites, is literally long of nostril. Big nose is what it says in Hebrew. And it indicates a maturity that manifests itself in careful responses, as opposed to the short-tempered or rash decisions of the short nostril, the young. The word translated steadfast love is the word chesed, which refers to loyalty to one's commitments. And the phrase translated faithfulness is the word emet, which refers to firmness or stability and is sometimes used to describe truth or truthfulness. So to summarize, God described himself brief briefly to Moses as one who can be moved to compassion, who's willing to hear the cries of the oppressed, who responds carefully and never rashly and is full of loyalty to his promises and stability in his governing and his responses. God then explained to Moses that these character qualities of God lead him to act consistently in certain ways. 
God remains loyal to those in relationship with him by forgiving, law-breaking, harms against each other, and sins against God up to the thousandth generation. However, God went on to explain that that does not mean that the guilty go unpunished, but in spite of God's forgiveness, there are still consequences for these transgressions that carry along in family lines to the third and the fourth generation. That's how God described himself. This is how God revealed his glory to Moses. And this description of God is completely consistent with what we find in the events of 1 Samuel 15 that we're considering today. In 1 Samuel chapter 15, verse 3, the prophets of Israel have preserved God's command to King Saul in the following way. He said, Now go and attack Amalek and utterly destroy all that they have. Do not spare them, but kill both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. I know it's hard to hear. The text of Samuel goes on to tell us that Saul did not follow this command to the letter, which maybe in our view would make Saul a hero. Instead, the text tells us Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep and and of the cattle and of the fatlings and the lambs and all that was valuable and would not utterly destroy them. All that was despised and worthless, they utterly destroyed. And God's response to Saul's selective obedience has been preserved in the following verses. The word of the Lord came to Samuel. I regret that I made Saul king, for he's turned back from following me and has not carried out my commands. Then later in verse 26, Samuel said to Saul, I will not return with you, for you have rejected the word of the Lord, and the Lord has rejected you from being king over Israel. Now this story has proven quite difficult to harmonize, both with contemporary readings of the ethics of Jesus and with contemporary sensibilities. To our ears, God's command sounds a lot like genocide. And God's rejection of Saul seems to be a rejection of Saul's having shown more mercy than God commanded. To settle these concerns, theologians have offered several suggestions. Some have suggested that God's command to Saul was hyperbolic and that God's rejection of Saul was not for showing mercy, but for only sparing the king's family and the choicest of the animals. So for these readers, God did not intend Saul to carry out the command literally. The command to wipe out men, women, children, and animals, so it is said, was an ancient Near Eastern way of describing war. Therefore, God's rejection of Saul was not for showing mercy, but for demonstrating self-interested greed. Other theologians have gone so far as to suggest that the prophets of Israel have lied about God in this passage. The argument goes that Jesus' teachings and example cannot be harmonized with this command or with the ensuing events. Therefore, for such interpreters, God never commanded Israel to attack the Amalekites. Israel simply used God as a justification for their warmongering, and they invented this story of Saul's disobedience as an after-the-fact way of explaining the transition from Saul to David in the ensuing story. None of these options make good sense of the text of 1 Samuel as we've received it, and none of them are necessary to make sense of the Scriptures as a whole. In fact, this command of God, according to the Scriptures, was over 400 years in the making. There was a reason that God sent Israel to conquer the Amalekites, And there was a reason that God commanded complete annihilation of their nature and their culture. 
That second one will probably be harder than the first. But let's look first at the reason for God's command to go to war with them at all. The story began not long after the events of Israel's exodus out of Egypt in 1446 B.C. After Israel crossed through the Red Sea, so this is just after they came out of Egypt, they were still slaves, really. They were just traveling out of Egypt for the very first time. After they crossed through the Red Sea, or the Hebrew Bible says the Sea of Reeds, on dry ground, but before they made it to Mount Sinai, so this is before they received the covenant, it was in between the Red Sea and getting to Mount Sinai, the Amalekites attacked them. It took a miracle of God to defeat the Amalekites on that occasion. The story is found in Exodus chapter 17, verses 8 to 16. After God delivered the people from slavery in Egypt, but before God established a covenant with them, the people of Amalek tried to wipe the nation of Israel off the face of the earth. And this is more than a simple skirmish. In Exodus, this attack of Amalek has been depicted as an attempt by the nations of the earth to stop God's plan of redemption in its tracks. It's similar to the, in theme to the attempt of Herod the Great to interrupt God's plan in Jesus by murdering every male child in the region of Bethlehem who was under two years old. Like Herod, if Amalek had succeeded, they would have thwarted God's plan of redemption of all of creation. So in the wake of the battle with Amalek, God said the following to Moses. This is in Exodus 17, verse 14. Then the Lord said to Moses, Write this as a reminder in a book and recite it in the hearing of Joshua. I will utterly blot out the remembrance of Amalek from under heaven. And Moses built an altar and called it, The Lord is my banner. He set a hand upon the banner of the Lord. The Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. So that's the beginning of the story. But God did not wipe out the Amalekites immediately. As God would later reveal to Moses, God is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. According to the biblical dates, the command of God to Saul to carry out what God had said he would do in Exodus chapter 17, verse 14, came after 416 years. 416 years had passed between God's promise to wipe out the Amalekites and God's command to Saul to carry it out. Now, we don't know the story of those 416 years in the nation of Amalek. We only know that they still lived south of the land of Canaan. But given God's description of himself to Moses, we can guess that those years were opportunities for the Amalekites to get right with God. God had declared himself gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, and abounding with steadfast love and faithfulness. For over four centuries, God left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. But it would seem that Amalek in the days of Saul remained as they were in the days of Moses. As God said, he overlooks transgressions for a long time, but he does not leave the guilty unpunished. If a nation repents of the sins of its ancestors, God may be merciful. Amalek didn't take that journey, but if they had, things may have been different. That's certainly what happened in the days of Jonah with respect to the citizens of the Assyrian city of Nineveh. But if the descendants of those who rebel against God remain in rebellion, eventually judgment will come. God is a God of chesed and of emet, of loyalty to his word and stability in his judgments. If there is no repentance, eventually judgment will come. In the days of Saul, God had determined that the period of mercy for the nation of Amalek was over. 
416 years, and God's estimation was all that they had. Now, that was not a decision that Israel could have made on their own. It's not up to humans to decide when the season of God's mercy has ended, nor is it up to humans to decide to be God's hand of judgment in any given season. That's not up to us. It was Amalek who had attempted to thwart God's plan of salvation for the world. It was God who promised to judge them for that decision. It was God who chose to assign the task of fulfilling that promise to Israel under the leadership of King Saul. And it was God who chose the day on which the mercy he had extended to the nation of Amalek had ended. These were all God's decisions, and they were explicitly communicated to Israel through a prophet. They didn't guess. They didn't have a war council and decide that the time was right. It was communicated to them explicitly through a prophet who had proved himself to be a prophet of God through all of his life. As the text of 1 Samuel is reported in 1 Samuel 3, verses 19 to 20, As Samuel grew up, the Lord was with him and let none of his words fall to the ground. And all Israel from Dan to Beersheba knew that Samuel was a trustworthy prophet of the Lord. So this text is not a proof text for warmongering or claiming God's divine approval for all and any battles in which a people or, or a person might engage. Nor is this a passage that has described God as approving of genocide generally. However, this passage does declare God as one who takes sin and justice seriously and who extends mercy generously, often for centuries, but who does bring judgment on the finally impenitent. This is consistent with the stories of the flood, the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah in Genesis, and it's consistent with the description of God's final judgment on the nations of the earth, anticipated and explained by the writers of the New Testament. So that was the reason that God sent the Israelites to conquer the Amalekites in 1 Samuel 15. But why did God command their complete destruction? That's the bit that gets us. Why did God not want anybody to survive? Well, that has more to do with us than it does with God. The Gospel of Matthew has preserved an exchange between Peter and Jesus on the night that Jesus was arrested. On that occasion, one of Jesus' disciples cut off the right ear of the high priest's servant with a sword. The Gospel of John tells us that it was Peter who did it. Matthew has reported Jesus' response as follows. This is Matthew 26:52. Then Jesus said to him, Put your sword back into its place, for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. It was God who placed Israel in the ancient Near East. But it was Israel, not God, who prayed to be like the other nations of that region. That's why they wanted a king. And one of the features of the nations surrounding Israel were generational blood feuds. God had attempted to limit the scope of that culture in Israel when in the law of Moses he commanded the following in Exodus 21, verses 23 to 25. If any harm follows, then you shall give life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, stripe for stripe. The basic principle here is that retaliatory justice cannot exceed the losses caused by an offense. So this law limits justice by escalation, but it also reveals the culture in which Israel was living. By the standard of eye for eye, tooth for tooth, what would have been the just response of Amalek to having their nation conquered and defeated? 
What would they have been within their rights to do in response? Only the conquest of Israel and their destruction would have sufficed. In that culture, at that time, if Amalek had not been wiped out, the survivors would have been within their rights and even expected ethically to seek the destruction of Israel forever. In fact, that is precisely what happened in the history of Israel. In the days of Esther, some 550 years later, 550 years later, a man named Mordecai tried to extinguish the people of Israel from the Persian Empire. And Esther chapter 3 verse 1 tells us that Mordecai was an Agagite, a descendant of the king Saul spared. An eye for an eye, indeed. Was God to blame for the ethics of the cultures of the nations surrounding Israel? Was God to blame that any survivors of a battle would have been ethically expected to seek retaliatory vengeance on their enemies forever? Was that God's fault? Jesus revealed in Matthew chapter 19, verse 8, that God only permitted divorce in the law of Moses because of Israel's hardness of heart. But Jesus says it's not the way God wanted it. It's simply what he allowed. Similarly, God commanded the complete eradication of Amalek because of the hardness of the hearts of the nations of the ancient Near East. It was not the ethics of God that required their complete annihilation. It was the ethics of the ancient Near East that required that. It is our fault, sometimes, for the commands God is forced to give because of the ethics we have chosen to live by. We should not be surprised when God's commands sometimes require his people to act according to the ethics they themselves have chosen. These are consequences of our values, not of God's. Now, how do we know these are not God's values? Well, when God walked amongst us in the flesh of Jesus, he taught us to turn the other cheek, to forgive our enemies, to pray for those who persecute us. Jesus could command these things because the kingdom into which he was inviting us to live is not of this world. However, Israel was a kingdom of this earth, and they themselves had chosen to live by the values and customs of the nations surrounding them. That's what they wanted, to be like the other nations. And this command required them to live out what they had promised. For those who wish to align themselves with the nations of the earth, God will ensure that they bear the consequences of those choices, however grisly they may be. In Jesus' words, if we choose to live by the sword, God will ensure that we die by the sword. 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9 has told us, The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some think of slowness, but is patient with you, not wanting any to perish, but all to come to repentance. In God's kingdom, certainly those who had not yet chosen to sin would not have been destroyed. God is unwilling for any to perish, wanting all to come to repentance. Thanks be to God. But the Amalekites had not chosen to live in God's kingdom, and nor had Israel. They wanted their own kingdoms, and according to the ethics of the kingdoms they had chosen, survivors would be threats to the descendants of the victors 
forever. They did not teach forgiveness. The Amalekites did not teach forgiveness. Nor did they value the loving of their enemies. And so God commanded them to do his will, judgment on the Amalekites, in that culture. Total devastation. Perhaps the most distressing part of this story is that God will only rescue us from the consequences of our decisions if we forsake the nations of the earth and follow Jesus into the kingdom of the heavens. If we choose the values of the nations of the earth as our values, God will hold us to those commitments and force us to live under their consequences. What would have happened if Samuel or Saul entreated God to forgive the Amalekites? What would have happened if the nation of Amalek had repented before God and sought forgiveness for what they did to Israel at the beginning? We don't know. That wasn't the nation for which Israel asked. And it wasn't the nation Amalek had chosen to be. Israel wanted a king to lead them in victory over their enemies. So God gave them that king and commanded them to follow his will in that context. When reading through the Bible, at times it's difficult to know which of God's commands represent God's will, irrespective of human hard-heartedness, and which of God's commands have been condescended to human hard-heartedness. It can be tough to tell the difference. In Jesus' day, this difficulty emerged in Jesus' teachings on divorce and remarriage, the law permitted divorce, so the Jewish people thought God was fine with it. Jesus said, no, God hates divorce. He allowed it because you're so wicked, he couldn't prohibit it. And that changes the way you look at the law, right? It's not an ideal standard, it's a compromised one. It's written to accommodate human hardness of heart, and written in such a way that broken humans could follow it. But it doesn't necessarily represent God's ideal will just simply his will at that time, given who we are. So how do we know which of these commands are condescensions and which are forever? Well, Jesus gave us a way to tell the difference. For Jesus, the story of creation in Genesis, the first 11 chapters, the calls to repentance of the prophets of Israel, paying attention to what the prophets of Israel criticized the people of Israel for throughout all of their history, paying attention to that, and paying attention to the teachings of Jesus and the way in which his apostles and the rest of the New Testament interpreted those teachings, if we take that together, we will clarify, God will clarify what will always be required of God and what was required only because of human hardness of heart. May those who have ears to hear listen to what the Spirit is saying to the churches. Amen.